I'm joined today by Dr. Paolo Novak, who convenes the master's program in Migration, Mobility and Development here at SOAS. He teaches the module Borders and Development. He's conducted fieldwork in Pakistan, Italy, India and Egypt. Dr. Paolo Novak, thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So at a time when we're subject to this sort of widespread rhetoric of taking back control, why is the subject of borders so key to the issue of Brexit? Well, look, I mean, in a nutshell, I would say that uh, this is because slogans like uh, take back control or indeed, I mean, I'm from Italy, Italians first was one of those slogans that uh, for the last two or three years, probably five years, in fact, dominated uh, the political scene or, or indeed make America great again. I mean, these are all slogans that characterize the current political debate. And I see them, at least perhaps for the perspective of my research, I see them as trying to intervene and to change the symbolic and functional dimensions of borders. So borders ultimately function to distinguish and differentiate between, at the very least, putatively sovereign entities. They regulate access uh, for people or commodities to enter the national territory, and they're symbolically used to define ourselves uh, uh, all of this, it's a lot of quote unquote ourselves as a nation. So take back control to me is a slogan that attempts to answer in very simplistic terms a series of questions that are related to borders in the sense that they have to do with political authority, political membership and the national economy. Let me give you maybe some examples about these questions, right? So questions that were, I think, at the center of the of the Brexit debate. So who, for example, who, who should set the rules governing the British territory, the EU or our parliament? Who should decide about the immigration issues, an EU treaty like Maastricht or our government? Who should decide about the government spending? I mean, remember the infamous red bus and all the promises of money being able to, to flow back to the UK and being able to spend in ways that serve our, our economy. Who do we need for our economy more in general? Who should we be trading this? I mean, all, all these questions are about borders, I think, in two ways. I mean, on one side, these are questions about border management. Brexit is a political process that I think attempts to redefine criteria for inclusion and exclusion in the national polity, criteria for regulating cross-border movement, criteria for governing the economy. So it's about managing cross-border movement, regulating who can enter, work or reside in the UK, or, I mean, in very simple terms, deciding whether chlorinated chickens, which dominated a lot of the debates, can be imported and sold in UK supermarkets uh, or not. And indeed, it's about enforcing this regulation that's part and parcel of border management. On the other side, I mean, perhaps more profoundly, I would say, these questions are about uh, borders because they're, they kind of are premised or certainly reinforce and project the idea that it is possible to distinguish between us and them, between our economy and other economy in territorial terms. So Brexit is about borders because it, it attempts to intervene in, in what borders do, the definition of a national economy, of a national polity in territorial terms, and, and the criteria for access to that, to that economy or polity. I think personally, this is all pretty wrong. It kind of relies on very simplistic notions of sovereignty and indeed what it means to restore it. Actually, let me rephrase it. I mean, the questions that I highlighted are quite legitimate and I think they should be subject to, to political debate. But the idea that by severing ties with the EU, 
we can restore sovereignty, I think is misconceived. And the kind of nationalistic portrayal of who is us or who are we, it's quite problematic, if not uh, altogether disturbing. On the kind of misconceptions of sovereignty, I mean, how inseparable are these two ideas that uh, could a state argue that it has sovereignty over its population and have freedom of movement at the same time, for example? Look, you can argue it in in various ways, in abstract ways. I I think ultimately these distinctions and and the slogans such as taking back control rely on uh, what in in academic jargon, excuse me, uh, are defined as territorially trapped assumption. In other words, they take the territorial limits set by borders as the basic analytical unit which through which sovereignty, citizenship and all of that kind of unfold, no? right? So borders define in, in this sense an absolute control over territory, borders distinguish between domestic and foreign economy. And indeed, it's an idea that uh, borders kind of function as a container of society. But these, I think, are all kind of problematic, if not altogether wrong assumptions. And I mean, I teach in the development studies department and uh, in that context, these assumptions are kind of self-evidently wrong. Just think about the relation between, say, a small developing countries and organizations such as the IMF or the World Bank and kind of the unequal power relations and, and the influence that such organizations have in deciding what goes on inside the national territory. Or think about bilateral relations in, in a geopolitical context between these small countries or, or even not so small and the US or the EU or indeed Britain. There is no absolute sovereignty or sovereignty in a pure form exists only in the abstract. And I think if there is a silver lining to the Brexit process is that these considerations uh, can be more evidently seen in in the UK context. I mean, take the notion of um, our economy. Right. So if I'm not mistaken, I actually had a note. I mean, some recent statistics suggest that 34 percent of the total turnover in the UK economy is produced by foreign firms. And in manufacturing alone, the percentage increases to 50 percent. I don't have figures, but I mean, the investment of British firm in foreign countries is also immense and kind of doubles the amount of what is produced here. So the point is that any clear cut distinction between the national economy, our economy and all other countries' economy is certainly problematic in this in, in this integrated world. But also take uh, the nationalistic us that has been projected through Brexit. I mean, again, it assumes, a, 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 I would say, a simplistic notion of a rel- relatively homogenous idea about who we are and what defines us. An idea that I think is quite problematic on one side because it conceals the imperial and racialized hi- histories that define who us citizen of the UK is and who is not, but also the differential experience and meaning that uh, is attached to our experience of of citizenship, if we wish. But in very simple terms, I mean, just think about the leave remain voting patterns in the referendum across the UK. And it seems to me that it's clear that the project of redefining and projecting who we are has actually produced very profound fissures and fragmentations in, in the national uh, polity. I mean, you can think just for a start on the, on what I would think a relatively tight split between leave and remain vote. Uh, or you can think about um, Scotland's decisively remaining vote to the point that some foresee actually the breakup of the UK as a consequence of, of Brexit. I'm not sure if that is the case, but for sure this highlights perhaps a first paradox of the Brexit vote, attempting to redefine 
who we are, actually produced an immense debate about who are we and has produced and engendered quite strong uh, political fragmentation. A second paradox perhaps is even more immediately visible and relates to the discussion on on border management. Restoring sovereignty, at least in the way in which it's uh, portrayed, ultimately means that the UK has to establish new relations with the EU and with other countries. And, And this was quite evident over the last year or two, I mean, in the whole process of defining what Brexit actually means. And and this is, again, relates to borders. I mean, borders for sure divide, and we can clearly distinguish now between the UK and the EU. But borders also unite, we say, in the field of border studies, in the sense that borders function as gateways or as points of contact with the rest of the world. So in this sense, I mean, yes, I take point that taking back control means being able to decide how borders should function as gateways or as barriers on the basis of our interests alone, with all the problematic connotation of of that term. But even if we come up with a perfect policy that that represents our interest, I mean, these decisions cannot be taken unilaterally and certainly cannot be enforced unilaterally, or it's more difficult for them to be enforced unilaterally. So taking back control does not really mean being able to decide unilaterally or on the basis of our interests alone, but rather means to me ultimately becoming entangled with other countries' interests. It means having to rely on others to define and enforce the criteria that regulate cross-border movement, for example. So my point is that taking back control actually requires cooperation to be implemented, and that means ultimately compromising our interests. So that is kind of the second paradox. And and I think all of these things ultimately rely to this idea that, uh, well, that borders function as containers of the economy and that you can go it alone if you wish, uh, in setting your own interest and pursuing them. Well, uh, what has become apparent is that, in fact, it requires even more cooperation, even more entanglement with uh, uh, different parties, different organizations, different countries. You kind of touched on the yeah the nationalistic notions of citizenship and, and fragmentation of identities. And we've all kind of been hearing the phrase hostile environment, particularly in the wake of the referendum, but also the rise of UKIP and the Windrush scandal. How, on a practical practical level, can we prevent a border management and border enforcement from creating a kind of hostile environment, you know, even more of one now that freedom of movement is being lifted? I mean, you kind of touched on it already, but I, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, can we? That would be my immediate <laughs> reaction. And I, and I make that, that question because ultimately, I mean, it's been successive governments, not only in the UK, I mean, ultimately, certainly across Europe, but in a sense, it's, it's a much wider and it's much wider than, than this. It's not only about Northern counties. I'm thinking about, I don't know, places like South Africa, where this idea of well, creating a hostile environment with a different understanding of the term that may be applied here or, or there uh, has been implemented. But look, in a sense, the hostile environment was um, a set of policies concerned with uh, making it more difficult for irregular migrants to to be in the UK, if you wish, right? It was about setting up border enforcement points well beyond the border and somewhat internalizing or bringing border controls onto the everyday. 
It's about surveillance. It's about landlords having to check your right to be in the UK. It's about uh, doctors and GPs doing the same. It's about uh, ticket inspectors on bus uh, working with UK well border agency or whatever it's called now uh, officers attached to them. Right. So that does not change. I mean, the only difference perhaps is that now European Union citizens might find themselves uh, irregularized or in an irregular status position, whilst before, just by holding a European passport, that was never the case. So what do we do about that? I mean, that's very difficult in the sense that we can think about specific policies. And I mean, there has been lots of policy debates and engagement with things such as uh, health, access to health for, for everyone, regardless of their uh, legal status. On our part, at its broadest, and going back to that nationalistic us in which you frame this question, I mean, we should relentlessly question and challenge any of those territorially trapped assumptions that, that I was referring to. It's, it's about thinking, I mean, trying to relentlessly pursue and convince uh, everyone that migrants are not just a problem that lands on our border that we need to take care of or, or resolve as a problem in a securitized manner, but really try to think about the connections between between economies that produce so many migrants. It, it, it means referring to the idea of our economy, well, being rich and uh, large, also thanks to the impoverishment of other economies in contemporary settings as much as historically. So, I mean, the hostile environment is seem quite disturbing and a set of policies that attempts to address a problem. And I, I suspect that the, for the foreseeable future, that will remain the case. It may change name, it may take a more uh, compassionate turn, but ultimately relies a, on that clear-cut distinctions between us and them, which, as I suggested, I find problematic. And second, does not take into account the real causes behind uh, uh, this movement that ultimately, in my opinion, relate to the more structural hierarchies that have accompanied the global economy from colonial times. Now, one of the most contentious issues, kind of maybe perhaps the reason for a lot of the delays in coming to an agreement with the EU, has been the potential breaching of the Good Friday Agreement by imposing a hard border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. So the final deal has agreed a border, but in the in the Irish Sea. So what do you think of this arrangement and how might this invisible border work in practice? I'm not sure how it is going to work. I mean, I, from, I mean I'm not uh, an expert on, on Ireland and uh, Northern Ireland. But from what I understand, there are over 200 formal crossing points between the Republic and, and Northern Ireland. And I think, but I mean, there, there, are, there is an immense number of work commuters. I mean, people who crosses the border in order to work, daily uh, crossings for whatever reason. So one of the things that was attempted to do in, in order to avoid, or was at the very least speculated in order to avoid a hardening, so-called hardening of the borders, it, which ultimately means a set of border checks and border stops in every single one of these uh, formal border crossing points was um, to rely on technology. I mean, the notion of smart borders is one that has taken the field of border management for the last 20 years. And a smart border, ultimately, it's a border that uses technology to solve what we, uh, we meaning the field of border studies, generally refer to the double 
imperative of border management. So on one side, the idea is to indeed, much like in relation to the hostile environment, make it as hard as possible for unauthorized entries of commodity or, or people to cross the border. But at the same time, and that simultaneity, that, that working together is, is what constitutes the double imperative. At the same time, uh, governments want to speed up, accelerate, facilitate all sorts of authorized entries. You want business to uh, be able to cross the border without red tape uh, or without costs and, and certainly without delays. So technology here plays a role because, in, again, in the abstract, is supposed to solve these problems by using, uh, well, face recognition, say, in, 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 uh, when it comes to people, but also uh, automated procedures that clear custom duties in advance of reaching the border, right? So it's about, again, moving the point of where enforcement of border regulations takes place so that there are no bottlenecks uh, at the border. Uh, and through technology, the aspiration or certainly the aspiration of the many consultancy companies that are heavily invested in, in so-called smart borders, uh, the idea is to create kind of preferential channels, fast lanes for travelers and commodities, right? And at the same time, so speeding up those kind of authorized movement and delaying, if not altogether, restraining and blocking unauthorized move. Whether this works or not, well, difficult to say in the sense that once a new bordering technique is put into place, well, ways of avoiding that is also <laughs> put into place. And I mean, just look at what's happening now with the lorries trying to cross the channel and you'll see how for the moment there is no clear sign of an, anything smart about that, to be honest. And these sort of smart borders, do you do you foresee them working anywhere else or do they already exist other, in other places in Europe at the moment? Well, look, I mean, in a sense, they, they, they are already active. You land at Heathrow, you land at Stansted, you land in most airports across Europe and indeed across the world. And if you have a, a digital passport, you just use it like, a, like an Oyster car, like a bus ticket. You put your face in front of a camera and lay your passport on a machine. I mean, that is a smart border. It's a border that identifies you, not so much on the basis of the passport, but on the basis of a whole set of informations about you that is stored, let's say, in some computer or in complex databases. So smart borders, when it comes to, to people, uh, they are about highlighting the risk profile of, uh, of travelers and identify the risks attached to each one of us to the point that ultimately when it comes to air travel at the very least, uh, by the time you reach the departure airport, people in the UK will already know that there is somebody with your name trying to reach the UK and, and there will be an automated software that will go through all the databases available and collect information about you to assess your risk profile. And even if you have the right set of documents in the sense that they will let, then let you board the plane, you might be stopped. Uh, if your risk profile is clear or you are a low risk traveler, as it is usually called, well, you'll put your passport on the machine and you will swiss, uh, be able to kind of swiftly go through through the machine. I mean, this is this is what it is. When it comes about to commodities, there are similar procedures in the sense that, again, containers are cleared in the, mo in the moment in which 
which they are put on a track, for example. The license plate is recorded, the opening and closing of the track is recorded, and so on. So what it becomes difficult is when travel and cross-border movement is not as neatly defined as, as I just represented. Again, go back to Ireland and Northern Ireland and what, what happens in the 200 formal crossing points. And what happens beyond those 200 formal crossing points? Well, these are all places where perhaps technology is a bit more limited. But yes, I mean, these smart borders are already in place, have been in place. The idea of the UK establishing the equivalent of the ESTA program that the US does, again, it's a, it's a step in that direction. It's about effectively sorting out mobile populations and commodity flows in terms of, in terms of the risk to, again, to our nation, to our economy, and so on. Speaking of commodity flows, the UK and the EU have secured a deal that has zero tariffs on quotas on goods crossing the border, but not on services. So how do you feel this will affect things like financial service, academics, musicians, and other workers who are trying to move across borders? These are all things that, uh, to me, are still pretty much unclear. But first, let me make a point. Yes, I mean, there, is, there has been a deal on zero tariff agreement, but certainly that doesn't mean that things have remained the same. Look at reports. I mean, I think yesterday, The Guardian and the FT were talking about truckloads of, of fish being unable to cross the channel because of the various administrative procedures that have been now have now been set place right so, so small firms are for the moment at the very least i mean there is an adjustment going on at the moment but for the moment small firms have suspended trade if anything because of the increased costs associated processing i mean just a, a banal example i mean my every morning i wake up to a tantrum because my small boy doesn't have his favorite cookies or biscuits which were sold by all turkish and Afghan shops in our high street coming from Italy. But these have completely stopped for the last three weeks. And partly this was about delays and the long queues that we saw on news reports in for cross-border channel. But partly this may also relate to small businesses or indeed ultimately brokers who were kind of leaving off the the well costs the difference between costs of buying a packet of cookie in Italy and selling it in an Afghan shop in Turnpike Lane that now that they have to guarantee and produce well not not in the case of cookies but certainly in the case of fish health certificates have been somehow disrupted as a trade uh, or think about the way in which commodity cross channel trade was organized with lorries independent lorries and, and companies, transport companies, transporting, say, containers or boxes or goods from different companies uh, and putting them in the same uh, uh, in the same track. Well, now the, the truck driver will have to present documentation for every single one of the boxes that they have. In fact, I was looking yesterday at some uh, Polish truckers' Facebook pages and, and you can see the, the horrible stories of, I mean, at least as, as far as I could understand them through Google Translate, but horrible stories about uh, delays, double checks, uh, checks beyond the border. So well, in, well inside the UK, in Kent, and so on and so forth. So how does it all pan out? I mean, even just by these examples, you can see how things are going to be very different for each one of us. Um, so take my case. I mean, I'm in, I have an Italian passport. I've been here for whatever, I don't know, 30 years, almost 25, something like that. I have a settled status. Ultimately, at the moment, nothing has changed in terms of legal status. 
for others, this was not the case. Young families, a friend of ours with an EU passport, I mean, they're having trouble because they've been here only two years. They they got a job, they lost the job with the crisis. I mean, for them, that change is, is quite profound. When it comes to commodities, and I think that's also a consequence of the kind of technological drive, usually the ones that lose out are the small traders. These are all policies and procedures that ultimately favor big business. And they favor big business because they have the capacity to adjust and uh, organize their own management systems with lower costs, if anything, because of the large amount of red tape and and the volumes that they trade uh, and so on and so forth. And this has been the case anywhere. A formalization through technology of of cross-border trading has occurred. I mean, again, in development studies, this is self-evident with any attempt at instituting smart borders, I mean, say in the context of the African continent, these are usually called one-stop border posts. There is a long, uh, a long set of policies and investments and concerns with speeding up trade along African borders. And, and again, all of these transformations seem so far to have benefited mostly formal traders, especially those with a large side. And those who have lost out are informal traders, cross-border traders, those that were making a small living off cross-border trade and that are unable to engage with these quite profound transformations when it comes to documentation, regulations, and and so on and so forth. So for academics, well, look, uh, you saw the debate. We research between the EU and academia and uh, UK academics have been strong for for several decades. Uh, UK academics, I think, were the largest recipients of European Union research funds. Of course, that seems and it's clear that there will be a loss, an immediate loss. It all remains to see what happens uh, in the UK and whether these funds will be replaced. Uh, musicians, the same. Will London remain the top destination for musicians trying to set up a band or to get the latest? Well, I hope so, or at the very least, I hope so until I keep living here. In terms of the the research funding on the subject of universities, they are the UK government are going to scrap the Erasmus scheme. Do you think that there might be a replacement for allowing students to come here and for us to send students elsewhere in Europe? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, that has represented a, a wonderful opportunity for for students across the EU and the UK, across Europe, in fact, something that really should be pursued at all costs. I mean, to me, in relation to UK academia, the biggest bet <laughs> seems to relate to the, to the fees and the fact that European Union citizens will now have to pay international fees. I mean, I've seen in my courses at SOAS in development studies, the increasing amount amount of, I mean, over the last 10 years, it's been a, quite a, a marked increase in the number of EU students coming to the UK, to SOAS, to development studies, to take an undergraduate degree, to take a master's course. Will they be doing the same now that they have to pay effectively double the amount of fees because they are considered international? I have my doubts, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, and I think that a lot of the universities in Europe that are kind of speeding up the delivery of English language uh, courses will benefit immensely from all of this. Whether, and I think this is the government's gamble, whether these European Union students will be replaced by other students, I mean, for the moment remains to be seen. Again, it's a a moment of transition and a lot of the promises that were made under Brexit or that really were not made under Brexit, certainly a lot of the emptiness of the slogans such as taking back control or Brexit is Brexit, it's actually 
uh, let's say, hitting the fan at the moment. And uh, <laughs> we, we remain to, to see and to figure out whether it all works out for, for the UK at large or not. Yes, I imagine we'll see how much geography matters in terms of, as you say, will will those replacement students come from further afield or not? Exactly. Um, so you mentioned South Africa earlier. Do you anticipate policymakers in the UK, whether that's civil servants, party advisors or ministers, to learn anything from the implementation of borders from countries outside the EU, especially from countries across the global south, which is often you know, what we specialise in here at SOAS? Indeed. Well, look, I think if anything, one, again, uh, uh, perhaps another silver lining, if you wish, is that finally, perhaps that distinction between global north and global south is kind of uh, collapsing. I mean, certainly we are witnessing a series of processes, a series of transformations that are global in their character. And I refer to both the political ideas associated to taking back control, which are for sure not confined to countries in the global north, but also the whole technology drive, the smart borders, the consultancy companies making tons of money off border management policies and practices in South Africa as much as in in uh, Mauritania as much as in Europe, the US or Australia or indeed Southeast Asia, right? So what remains to me of interest in terms of academic research and teaching remains to see how all of these set of transformations and changes that are global and in a sense have always been global, but even more visibly now are global, uh, how they are, if you wish, declined or which forms do they take in different contexts. Ultimately, there is what, maybe five, six, ten consultancies that have softwares related to smart borders, for example, and they sell their product to any government willing to take them. How does that work in the UK as opposed to other contexts? What are the effects of the introduction of smart technologies in the UK and elsewhere? I mean, this to me is the most interesting part of the dialectics. Yes, they, they will learn that ultimately, they, so UK policymakers will learn that ultimately all of this is quite complex. I mean, I'm sure they kind of knew already, to be honest. It's just about adjusting to a new set of problems uh, in the sense, well, a new set of questions and, and problematics and, 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 and implementation of, this, of these processes. Uh, you, you mentioned dialectics. <laughs> For our listeners with a kind of keener interest in the academic side of this, mm. are there any big ideas from any particular Marxist or post-colonial academics that you feel these policymakers of any any political persuasion, I suppose, mm. can learn uh, from uh, on the topic of Brexit and borders? Yeah, well, look, I think when it comes to, to academic engagement uh, or certainly kind of different approaches to understanding Brexit, border management, smart borders, I mean, the way in which we talked about it was mostly about how and with what effects. I think both Marxist and post-colonial understandings and approaches to the study of borders at large are great because they actually ultimately attempt, at the very least, to answer the real question, which is why? <laughs> why all of this is happening? And, and again, both of both of these approaches, well, first of all, there is hardly any coherent uh, approach, but rather different voices inspired by different uh, traditions will offer 
a, a different interpretation uh, of, of what is going on. But their key concern is, is with the why question, why all of this is happening. And I think that is really the question. That is the question that then allows us to think about how is this happening or what effects does it have? On one side, you have those that are more concerned with political economies, with the unfolding of long trajectories of, uh, of development that are very much concerned with trying to interpret these transformations from the lens of, well, capitalist development, if you wish, right? So what interests do these transformations serve to, right? Why was, why did the UK or certain constituencies in the UK favored an approach to engaging with the global economy through a Brexit lens, as opposed to another one much more aligned and in tune with the EU. And, and again, here we see, go, we can go back to the fragmentation I was uh, talking about a bit earlier. I mean, with different uh, sectors of the economy, different businesses that have different, well, that some of which will lose out and some of which will benefit. The post-colonial academics are much more concerned with perhaps those distinctions that I was mentioning before about us and them and how this distinction come to be created, how borders kind of fictionally distinguish amongst people on the basis of uh, of lines that, well, that are artificial, that perhaps even fictitious, some would say. How those lines hide those histories of colonialism and how they are reproduced in, I mean, even in debates such as the one we are having, where we continue to use terms such as us, them, we, ours, that are premised on bordered understandings of social life. So these two approaches are, are crucial in, in my research and in my teaching precisely because they go to the, to the core of what I think is interesting here, i.e. the explanation of these transformations. I'm sure policymakers know that capital matters and that it's quite difficult to distinguish between us and them exclusively along territorial lines. So, well, I welcome them anyway in my course. And in fact, I've had quite a few either policymakers or, or uh, border managements from the UK and indeed from the from other other countries in the world taking my course and hopefully they they got something out of it. Well, hopefully that's a pattern we'll see going forward uh, for both SOAS and also across the other universities too. Hopefully policymakers will uh, engage more with the research and the experts going forward. <laughs> Dr. Paolo Novak, thank you very much. We'll leave it there for today. Thank you, Katie. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of SOAS Leads the Conversation. You can find out details about Dr. Novak's work on the SOAS website. And if you're interested in further reading, I highly recommend you take a look at his 2019 journal article, Back to Borders. Details about the master's program he convenes and other courses in the Development Studies Department can also be found on the SOAS website and in the show notes. 